I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. McKinley hollered. McKinley squalled. Doctor said, McKinley, death is on the wall. Say it to me if you've got something to confess. I heard all about it. He was going down slow. Heard it on the wireless radio from the boondocks way down in Key West. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and here to talk about Key West, philosopher pirate, the penultimate, or is it penultimate song on 2020's Rough and Rowdy Ways is renowned Dylan scholar and margaret Daniel. Hi, Anne. Hi. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you back. We talked about uh, the Blood on the Tracks notebooks a bunch of years ago, but now we're talking about something a little more recent. And of course, uh, if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, which is June 19th, that is the one-year anniversary of Rough and Rowdy Ways. It's already been a year. Uh, so before we get to talking about this song, uh, and I want to ask you, like, you were very positive about the record when it came out, as were most people. What do you think about it a year a year in, now that we've all had time to sort of live with it? Well, to put it, yeah, I like living with it. Um, to hmm. put it mildly, um, it holds up. And I'm. it just, it makes me thirsty thinking that it's been a year since it came out. It makes me a <laughs> thirsty for something new. <laughs> I know I'm being greedy, but mm-hmm. I, no, I, I think it really is one of his best albums in the last 30 years. The mix of songs on it, particularly songs like Crossing the Rubicon, Goodbye Jimmy Reed is just a fantastic kind of rockabilly dance song. Black Rider is remains distressing and thought-provoking, <laughs> um, as does <laughs> my own version of you. And I've, I've got to say, I think Key West Philosopher Pirate is one of his best songs. It's hit that point for me. Yeah, I said at the time when I did the review episode of the album with uh, the music critic Tom Moon that I, I was laying on the couch here in the studio listening to the record for the first time. And I think we got, uh, uh, you know, five, ten seconds into Key West. And I immediately said, oh, wow, this is I already know I'm going to love this. And weirdly, it feels like a song that has always been around. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of those it's one of those songs like um it doesn't remind me of the song, but the fact that it's always been around makes me think of Long Black Veil. Um, Long Black Veil is a song that feels like it was written sometime in the 1830s or maybe even 1630s. Mm-hmm. And Key West feels the same way. I mean, for all the pop culture reference um, and its popular culture of the past 50 or 60 years, uh, longer if you throw in McKinley, but hmm. um, but you know the mention of a radio station or something doesn't throw me. It still feels like this song has been around as long as there's been human settlement on Key West. It really does. When I first heard it, and I immediately in my mind drew up comparisons to Highlands, uh, which I mean, yeah. when when the man's catalog is so vast as this, you can't help but comparing it to other songs, even yeah. if that may be a slightly reductive way of looking at it. I couldn't help it because it was like, okay, this is this long epic song ending the album. And again, we'll talk about whether this really ends the album or, or it doesn't, but I I actually, I think of it as the last song on 
the album. I do. It, it, I know that technically Murder Most Foul takes up its own side, but this is just such a Dylan record closer. Right. Oh, well, okay. Let's talk about that now then. Yeah. I, you know, I know that there are limits to the, how much digital information can be put on uh, a CD. And so that's why presumably Murder Most Foul is its own separate thing. Maybe I, he couldn't fit it all. They, they couldn't fit all 10 songs onto it. But at the same time, the fact that Murder Most Foul, um, that image of John F. Kennedy, which was the image used as the sort of single, is yeah. the back cover. It feels as though Dylan is very specifically putting that song off to the side. Like it's the epilogue. It's not the last song. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Am I, is that how it reads to? Because, yeah, I feel like in a lot of ways, Key West is the end of the is the end of the album. Yeah. It it really does. And it's, I mean, I just, I remember listening to the first few notes of the song and then the lyric begins and I thought, oh, sort of dimly in the back of my head, this is a song that I've, I've heard before. Mm-hmm. And part of it was just the simple tune, which Dylan is a fan of, um, mm-hmm. a deceptively simple tune, that I think the focus of that or the function of that is it makes you listen to the lyrics more closely. Mm-hmm. Um, listening to the lyrics, I didn't immediately remember the Charlie Poole song uh, about McKinley. Oh, White House Blues, but, yeah. Yeah, White House Blues. But it, it, you know, it sounded familiar to me, and it should have. Um, and then it shears away and Dylan adds his own lyrics to what Charlie Poole has done. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, there are a few people who would be ballsy enough to do that. And Dylan <laughs> is one of them. And, and you're going down to, you know, heard it on the wireless radio. It's not just a radio. It's a wireless radio, which is kind of redundant. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. What he, what, but what he's talking about is a transistor, an old fashioned wireless. Um, there's something archaic about the delivery. And then, of course, the line down in the boondocks hits you because it's a song title. Mm-hmm. And, and then the way down in Key West. And then you get a second verse, you know, the love and inspiration verse. And then finally you get the refrain. Key West is the place to be if you're looking for immortality. The refrain, which is never the same any two times. <laughs> and I thought, my goodness, we really got something on our hands here. <laughs> <laughs> when I, again, when I was comparing it to Highlands in, in that song, the narrator is not, has not presumably not been to the Highlands yet. He, he imagines it as a place he wants to get to. But he's he's not there. He's stuck in the Boston with the you know with the waitress and all this other kind of stuff. But here in Key West, the timeline is shifting, as is you know, happens in a lot of Dylan songs. The timeline is shifting. Is that this this narrator has obviously been to Key West quite a bit uh-huh. and has fond memories of it. But yet he is he or she is not there at the moment because he's not saying Key West. He's not saying, you know, come here in Key West. He's saying there in Key West. Right. Which and, means and he's somewhere out, else. Yeah. To shout out another, uh, a fellow Nobel laureate in literature with whom I think Dylan's art increasingly has a lot in common, and that's W.B. Yeats. I mean, I've been saying for years that, that Dylan, not Yeats, is the last romantic, as Yeats famously uh, declared himself to be. But this, this song, to me, is so much like Yeats's poem, The Lake Isle of Inishfree. 
um, which is possibly Yeats's best-known poem around the world. And the whole poem is about being in another place and remembering, imagining back to this spot in time that happens to be an island. Um, it's a little island off the coast of, uh, not off the coast, it's in the middle of a lake, um, near Sligo, Ireland, and it's a tiny island. The Lake Isle of Inishfree is about the size of a house, a small house. <laughs> <laughs> and but the, but the point of it is, it provides um, what Wordsworth would call a spot in time. It provides a kind of a touchstone of a place that you love, that you can go back to in your imagination when things are bad. Um, the speaker of Yeats's poem says, you know, he's standing on some gray pavement at, at the end of the poem, but he hears the lake water of the Lake Isle of Inishfree lapping in the deep heart's core, right? And this is exactly the same time, type of poetic construction, Key West. You're not actually on Key West. The singer, the speaker is not on Key West, but is remembering, you know, telling you how to get there, right? The, the, the delivery of how to get there, um, what to do with the hibiscus flower, you know, put it behind <laughs> your ear when you got there, um, walking in the shadows after dark, but he's not actually there walking in the shadows. He's remembering it, right? Mm -hmm. Wherever I travel, wherever I roam, I'm not that far from the convent home. So even though he's off on the road, Key West or, or this imagined Key West is the place that, that the singer of the song comes back to. When it, when it's, uh, when it first came out, uh, of course, like the uh, key, I, I made a joke that the Key West Chamber of Commerce, you know, <laughs> was going to get all on this song because they can just take it literally as, hey, it's a nice commercial for, for the beauty that is Key West. And when I was doing research for this, that's in fact what happened. You know, there were, there's about a dozen different articles of like, you know, Key West Travel Bureau and Florida Travel. And it's all like, hey, come visit Key West. Excellent. So, you know, they, they've been using Jimmy Buffett songs for 40 right. years, and now they have a new one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you're listening to this, when you're listening to the, to the song, do you get the sense that Dylan, and again, I'm not trying to ask you, you think, what does Dylan think, because no one can guess that, but it's only how, right. you, how you take it, is that is, is Dylan, is the singer, again, she keeps saying the singer, not necessarily Bob Dylan himself, but is the person truly remembering Key West as this great place or is it more of a stand-in for something else or is it a slightly in your mind like a kind of like he's kidding himself a little that it's no place is as good I mean the language that, well, the, that well, the singer all, uses is, all, is I hate to say it's all it's both and it's all of mm. the above it is it's an actual place of course right it is a state of mind it is it's an imaginary never, never land. And it has a lot in common with Peter Pan's never, never land after mm -hmm. all. Um, most of it is positive. Most of it is beautifully outlined. You know, the, the kind of the curveball stanza of being 12 years old, put in a suit and forced to marry a prostitute <laughs> kind, of, kind of makes you jump out of your, out of the, the, the lulled state you've gotten into with all the blooming bougainvillea and the gumbo limbo spirituals um, and the walking in shadows after dark. He never lets you get quite comfortable there. <laughs> um, the refrains are beautiful. You know, Key West is a place to go down by the Gulf of Mexico, beyond the sea, beyond the shifting sand. It's like a beyond place. 
Um, Key West, he says, is the enchanted land. Um, and then the next line is, I've never lived in the land of Oz. So, th- I mean, it's a reminder that there's no enchanted land that is so wonderful and perfect, but that it doesn't have its dangers. Um, Oz is certainly true that way. And among the orchid trees, you've got, you know, bleeding heart disease. Um, you've got the, uh, you've got the, um, you've got, you've got kind of grim things that happen there. It starts out with a presidential shooting. You have these tiny blossoms of a toxic plant um, that are kind of a, a, you know, they, they complicate the the beauty of the beginning of this song. Um, The line that blew me away was I'm so deep in love. I can hardly see. Mm -hmm. That's like, that's just such a flat out admission that you really wanted to hear that. I as being, you know, Dylan singing, uh, even though you know that it's not quite correct to do that, I yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I always train my students. Whenever you have a really strong narrative, I um, it's it's not the author, it's not the writer, it's the poetic voice that they're using. But as is the case with Yeats, as is the case with someone like Lord Byron, sometimes that I is so strong and so related to what you know biographically of the person that you really want to say it's Byron saying or it's Yeats saying. And when I heard that line, I thought, oh my. God, Dylan's in love. How wonderful. <laughs> um, you know, you just, you, and then you get on to the, if you lost your mind, you'll find it there. You know, I'm sticking with you through and through. There are these, there are these reminders of, of the way that this little island, this, this in some ways, as you say, imaginary island, and it's right, it is Key West, but it's also kind of an imaginary place, is what's keeping you sane and keeping you connected and keeping you together. So, you know, the the love of this love song is more for a place and state of mind than it is for any individual. Yeah, the, throughout the song, uh, he manages to get to this, as you mentioned, the the kind of shifting of the, the it starts with this grim um, you know, this grim start talking about McKinley being assassinated, which makes uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways, the, the final two songs both feature uh, presidential assassinations right up front. Yeah. Uh, so obviously he's got that, Bob's got that on his mind. But it has this, I felt like it had this wonderful tension to it that, again, it's like it's, the narrator is in love with this place and it's in his mind. And yet there is the knowledge of that it's not quite as good as you're remembering it to be. Which uh, actually nothing is. So. Right, and nothing is. Right, Fair exactly. <laughs> and that, also, you know. I, I have to say that the um, there's there's a way in which this, you know, the, the, the poetic construction here, the I, is, you know, someone who's wandered around on the margins of Key West a lot. Like you said earlier, someone who's been there and visited there. And honestly, that part or that attitude of the song reminds me so much of the Odyssey and the figure of Odysseus. Um, there's a section of the Odyssey where, I mean, it keeps on happening to Odysseus, right? He's repeatedly washed up on islands that are not his own because he's trying to get home from Troy after having enraged Poseidon, the god of the sea. And you really don't want to do that if your kingdom is across the sea from where you've been. (laughs) So so it takes him a very long time to get home, hence the poem, The Odyssey. And one of the islands in particular, um, it's an island that's, oh, it's it's the island of Calypso, um, a nymph named Calypso. And Odysseus, you know, pretty much falls in love with her and kind of forgets about going home for a while. 
and he wanders around on the margins of these islands, um, like Ojija, um, Aia, which is uh, Kirke's Island, Circe's Island. Um, he wanders around, you know, on, right on that line between, as Dylan says in the song, on the horizon line. It's the margin of land and water. It's walking right at the sea's edge, thinking about being at home and what it means to be at home. It's it's it, it's really an interesting kind of shifting reminder of the Odyssey to me. Um, whenever you've got somebody stranded on an island, you know, instead of reminding me of Treasure Island, it reminds me of the Odyssey. Hmm. That's, <laughs> it's amazing how much uh, Dylan can pack into a song that you can get that much out of it. Oh my goodness! Read yeah. that much out of it, and there's still so much more. I mean, you know, this is again. This song runs about nine minutes. By the way, I I frequently on this show too often I don't give enough credit to the musicians that Dylan is playing with because oh well, this, uh, this song kind of belongs to Donnie Heron. That, yes, yeah, that beautiful work that Donnie's doing. Yeah. That that just the the perfect kind of sway back of the accordion feels like a hot summer wind kind of coming in and going, or like the tides coming in and going out. And it has that feel to it where, and Dylan has talked about this uh, as far back as the sixties, but specifically when he was talking about the blood on the track songs, the idea of stopping time and the idea that you're looking at some piece of it and then you're not, you have to stand back and see the whole of it. This song, despite being nine minutes uh, which again doesn't it's still not even the longest song in the record. It yeah, it feels doesn't, it doesn't feel that long. No, it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. I feel like it's like oh, if this thing was eighteen minutes, I would have been okay with it because it just has that kind of loping. And by the way, there is one moment that I noticed right around the five minute and twenty three second mark, right after he says the gumbo limbo spirituals, you hear Donnie Heron's accordion warble a little bit. You hear like a little roar, like he just messed up. Or, or maybe he's giving you a little riff from a Gumbo Limbo spiritual. That, that would be more like Donnie. You know? Could be. And I, you know, I heard that and I think, well, from what, you know, we've heard about Bob, he doesn't really care about that. He wants the take to be the, the real live, you know, the, the one that has the, the real life to it. And he doesn't care if there's a warble to it or somebody flicks a guitar string wrong. He doesn't, that's, that's not his concern. And so, the rest of it, you know, to me, it's that little imperfection almost makes it perfect. It's like, ah, fine, we'll just keep going. I'm I'm not so sure as you are that it is an imperfection. I think it may be Donnie doing a little bit of call and response. Um, my favorite example of this is, uh, you know, it's like the you you hear instruments following Dylan's voice all the time in recordings and on stage because he has celebratedly been hard to keep up to keep up with in his singing <laughs> on stage right. and the the musicians have to follow him but sort of the king of this is is Al Cooper on the organ in like a rolling stone where he just lets those riffs rise and fall and follow Dylan's voice um, in a line on visions of Johanna, like ghosts of electricity howls in the bones of her face. You can, you can hear the instruments like bringing out that howling they're, they're doing, you know, it's, it's like, they're all the little RCA Victor dogs listening to (laughs) Astor's voice, you know, and and they're following along with what Dylan, what, what Dylan is directing in what he's doing lyrically and particularly with his voice. Hmm. Um, okay. At least All that's right. how it feels to me. Um, I, I like that. I mean, yeah, that, I could see that. Uh, <laughs> and particularly in this song, it's, I mean, it's beautifully sung. Can we just, can we just for once and for all 
lay to rest the old Bob Dylan can't sing thing. Oh man. Yeah. His, his, the quality of his voice is lovely on the song and the phrasing, his phrasing is so masterful. I mean, he, he didn't just learn it from, let's say Frank Sinatra. Um, This is the kind of phrasing that Caruso, that an opera singer knows how to do, you know, controlling the voice and how the voice is used and where the breaks are. Um, Dylan is fantastic at it. You mentioned the the verse uh, re- related to the specifically the the vocal performance here. Uh, you mentioned the the verse about the twelve years old and they put me in a suit, forced me to marry a prostitute. There were golden fringes on her wedding dress, and the, when he gets to the part about that's my story, but not where it ends, and then the line she's still she's still cute, and we're still pause friends. Yeah, and that line <laughs> it just breaks my heart every single time it make it recalls so much of my own life of people that have come and gone in my life Uh, and this sort of melancholy of the people that have that are not there anymore either either it's it's melancholy but it's also it's also cut it's also kind of cuddly friendly i mean Mm -hmm. it's this this is a story that could have gone let's say you've got a 12 year old kid forced to marry a prostitute that is going to go very wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's not a good setup. That's my story, but not where it ends. You st- you've got some trepidation. You're like, how the hell is this going to end? It's not going to end well, but she's still cute and we're still friends. It's like, Oh, you know, you kind of brighten up at that point and you think, well, yeah, actually, even from, even from the strangest and most potentially bad circumstances, good things do shake down in the end and it's not even the end. I mean, that's my story, but it's still ongoing. The story's not over yet. So I, I tend to give that a more positive reading actually than, than, than you do. And I mean, it certainly is a very nostalgic song, just the tone of it, the feel of it is very, um, you know, it's, it's something deeper than sentimental. It's, uh, I think nostalgia is the word that I would use for it. Um, Scott Fitzgerald referred to nostalgia as flight of the heart. And that's, that's what this song is. What do you take of the idea? I, again, I was looking up at some other interpretations people have had of that particular verse, the 12 years old that put me in a suit, is that he's talking about uh, religion. He's talking about his religion, is that he's, not, he's no longer a devout believer in anything, but the religion is still, is still cute. And we're still friends. Like he has, he's still on a good relationship with it, even though he's not, they're not married. He's not married to it anymore. So you're meaning from the 12 years old, you're meaning, I assume a bar mitzvah. Right. And the religion you're talking about is Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an interesting reading. It's not my reading. I, mm-hmm. I don't actually see it there. I think 12 years old is kind of an iconic age. It's the last year that you're a child before you become a teenager. Right you know, 12 and then the next year is 13. So definitionally, whatever your religion is, it's your last year of childhood. And that's true in Victorian novels. That's true in many, many cultures um, where people get married or got married well before they were 12. Um, you know, so I'm, I, I, I find that reading really interesting, but it, it didn't jump out at me. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, again, it's it's the way he delivers again. I, yeah, I, I guess it depends on my on what day I'm listening to it, of course, of how much the it. we're still friends is grimmer or lighter yeah. than than other times because it's. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, the next verse is certainly grim and that, that brings it down. And since this is the lead in to the verse, I play both sides against the middle, picking up that pirate radio signal. I heard the news. I heard your last request fly around my pretty little miss. I don't love nobody. Give me a kiss down at the bottom, way down in Key West, mm-hmm. um, which is th- that's, that's a chilling verse to me. What's your read on that? What's what? How do you take that? Uh, I mean, playing both sides against the middle is is like playing poker. Um, it's it's uh, it's a traditional way of saying that you're not going to commit to any extremes. I guess um, picking up that pirate radio signal kicks me back to what I think of as Radio Luxembourg. So I like that. But I heard the news. Then is is followed up with I heard your last request. And that's, I mean, the last request is someone who's going to die. Yeah. Right? Um, Fly Around My Pretty Little Miss is a fantastic song, and I'm surprised to see it here. My grandfather used to sing it. He used to play the fiddle and sing it on the porch um, at home <laughs> in North Carolina. It's a beautiful, you know, fly around my pretty little miss, fly around my daisy, fly around my pretty little miss. You drive all the boys crazy. But the end of it here is I don't love nobody. Give me a kiss which is the classic, you know, I'm going to protect myself, but I still want to have a good time. <laughs> and and that, that line always makes me grin a little. And then down at the bottom, way down in Key West. Um, I'm sorry it's down at the bottom, but it sounds to me like it's at the bottom of the sea. Uh, at the end of the stanza, Key West is almost like Atlantis to me. It's like it's sunk into the ocean, which would destroy it, but also preserve and protect it forever and make it mythic. <laughs> this is certainly uh, again if you want to compare it to some other bob songs like when he mentions florida in other songs usually florida is an offhand reference to a place of criminality uh you know he talks about in po' boy going down to florida to escape the georgia laws uh when he in tweer and the monkey man he talks about going down to florida to get myself some sun after all these crimes have been committed and here obviously it's a much more it's a much warmer uh take on it this sort of beautiful place and we know about dylan that he himself is able to visit places and be a regular guy uh you know uh, i would i would think especially during these most recent pandemic days when one could one could have a mask on (laughs) and Hmm. traveling places he he might he might have i mean i i hope he wasn't traveling or anything but but it's you know it's it's a it was a good time to not be recognized if you were recognizable um i do know that he spent a lot of time uh because terry gans has written about it in his really brilliant recent book about um it's essentially about infidels and yeah, the surviving uh, in a ruthless world yeah exactly surviving in a ruthless world he's got a fairly long passage about dylan you know sailing around the caribbean and spending time on on the waters there uh in his much lamented lost uh sailboat the water pearl um <laughs> which which sank but uh 
you know, he's Dylan in, in Chronicles, Dylan says in the 10 years that I had her, meaning the water pearl, my family and I had sailed the entire Caribbean and spent time on every island from Martinique to Barbados. So he's, you know, he spent a lot of time out there. Um, he writes in Chronicles, he writes a lot about different bodies of water, oceans and lakes. Um, he writes about rivers. He writes about the Great Lakes, the Black Sea, um, the Pacific. Uh, that he can see from his home in Malibu. And and it's, uh, you know, in a way, maybe this is kind of a, a song that's in homage to to all those seaside places that he loves, to all those islands that that he's appreciated. I don't know. He drops a lot of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he drops a lot of very specific references to yes. Key West. Uh, I mean, and, and if you don't know Key West, you just have to assume, okay, this is must be Amelia Street, Bayview, Bayview Park. Uh, and you know, it's that, square. Yep. yeah, yeah. And it's always that, that idea of you make something universal by making it specific is you making something. Well, it kind in- of, and it interests me that he leaves out the most specific writer associated with Key West, who is Hemingway. Right, right. Um, he mentions Ginsburg, Corso, Kerouac. He mentions Louis, Jimmy, and Buddy, whoever they are. And there's been debate about who who they are. But he does not mention Ernest Hemingway, who lived in Key West, who still, you know, his house there is now a museum. It's a big tourist attraction. Uh, it. I kind of like it that he doesn't mention Hemingway <laughs> or quote, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure that if there were a line from an Ernest Hemingway story or a letter in this song, um, our friend Scott Warmoth would have told us about it by now. <laughs> so I, I can only guess that it is not in fact here. Um, there's, there's a fantastic, uh, similar kind of feeling letter from, uh, Martha Gellhorn who, in fact, would marry Hemingway years later. The first time she visited Key West, uh, she wrote a letter to her good friend Eleanor Roosevelt in 1937, in which she said, I'm in Key West. To date, it's the best thing I've found in America. It's hot and falling to pieces, and people seem happy. (laughs) I love that that quotation. And this song kind of carries that, gentleness with it um as well as being a place that's gonna it doesn't promise you immortality but it says it's a good place to be if you're looking for it um it says that it's fine and fair and then the promise if you lost your mind you'll find it there which is a very double-edged line but it's like a positive thing i think as well it can bring you back to yourself and of course he mentions the truman white house Yes, uh, which is again a real detail. The Truman had a, a house down in basically a, a an alternate White House down in in Key West. And you mentioned earlier um, when he mentions Bougainvillea blooming, and I have said this in other episodes. We you know when reference to Dylan's verbal dexterity, he is able to insert words in songs that I think most people, if they tried <laughs> to sing it in a song, if not trip them up, would sound very very. Um, discordant because it would just sound weird hearing someone work work a certain word into a song like bougainvillea that's a hard word to work into a song and he makes it sound so natural it's sad we live in a day and age where you know a lot of popular songwriters um and i'm talking about people who have big number one hits and you know often they don't even write their own songs but when they do write their own songs they um 
they use the same eight or 10 words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you even have these consortiums of songwriters writing massive hits and the refrains are usually simple and profane and they use one syllable words mm-hmm. and then and Dylan drops Bougainvillea, you know, yeah. in a way you can't write a song about Key West without talking about Bougainvillea because it's all over the place. And if you, um, if you are kicking around on a bicycle uh, throughout the California coast, um, including where Dylan lives, there's Bougainvillea all over the place out there. It's a beautiful tropical um, exotic that literally cannot grow where it's cold. So it's, it's perfect. It's wonderful. And he knows how to say it and how to sing it. And he knows the name of the plant. So I, I give him all the credit for all the big words always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when it said, I talked about, uh, years ago when working man's blues number two, which is one of my uh, favorite songs of his, and he has the word proletariat in there proletariat who's who in this age is putting the word proletariat in a song and can make it sound so natural who in this age does the rhymes that he does i mean who rhymes orphanages and sons of bitches Um, (laughs) he is just he's you know it it doesn't get any better really doesn't one of the other things that i i took from this uh and when he's talking about listening to the radio now of course bob Bob himself has talked uh, extensively uh, in interviews and in uh, No Direction Home, talking mm-hmm. about playing, uh, you know, keying into these little, ra- you know, reeking dick radio stations that he was that yeah. he could pick up in Hibbing, uh, that would play music from far away, and that's, you know, I talked earlier about the idea that the song goes back and forth in time. Is that I feel like that's Bob recalling a, a, a simpler time in his life when he was ten or eleven and hearing Hank Williams songs and hearing Little Richard and. Everything was ahead of him. Everything was exciting and new. And he's at at this age, the 80 year old Bob is recalling that time again with a wistfulness, knowing it really wasn't as good as you're remembering it to be, but he still has that tension of knowing it was that good. Like, do you, I don't want to, I'm not going to ask you what that place is if you do have it, because that's, that's your business. But I'm curious, do you have a place in your mind that's like a Key West to you? That's, that you have this wonderfully romantic vision of it. And Absolutely. You- I, and I, th- I think we all do. I think mm. it's one of the, that's looping back to the Lake Isle of Inishfree. I think that's one of the most powerful things about that poem is some of us who have never been to Ireland or to Sligo or seen Yeats's little Island. We've all got some place in our mind, um, some place that we remember from our childhood, from our past, a place where we were happy. Um, and it's, you know, it may be as simple as, as it is for me. One of my places that I think of is upstairs in my mother's mother's house where there was a small parlor that was just stuffed full of books and there was a window seat. I mean, I was like a little Jane Eyre child, you know, (laughs) I would, I would curl up in that window seat and read. And you were also looking straight out the window across a tobacco field, a Creek and up the broad side of the great smoky mountains. And it's, that's a place like that for me. Um, When things are bad, when times are rough, you know, when you feel your heart rate going up and your stress level going up, you can close your eyes and you can think about a place like that you can recite a few lines of a poem or a lyric that you really like and it'll help um 
I, I very much liked what you were saying about Dylan and the whole idea of a radio and how it connected him when he was young in a way that no other media were able to do at that point. I mean, now we have, we, pretty soon there was television and then there was the internet and now we're, we're hideously connected to everything. Mm-hmm. And there's a quality in Key West that just says, take all your technology and flush it. <laughs> <laughs> and just just take your transistor radio and and that's and and it's actually true when you're traveling around the world one of the most interesting things to do is to flick on a car radio or to turn on a radio in your hotel or wherever you're staying and listen to local stations um if you can understand the language it really gives you a sense of where you are a sense of what's going on you listen to the commercials and you get to know something about a place that you otherwise would not know if you didn't have that connection i do wonder at what point in his life uh again i keep it's you can't help but layer bob dylan's life onto this which isn't necessarily accurate because he's playing he could be playing characters in any given uh, moment in any of these songs. Not necessarily. Oh yes, his I, life. I think he. I think he always is. <laughs> right, yeah. but at the same time, like he obviously at some point along the line in his career figured out that for to have a fulfilling life and even to keep yourself to be a better songwriter, better artist was to have a life. You know, to have a life, to have that ability. Like there's the, if you go and you look, by the way, if you go to the Wikipedia page for this song, this song has its own Wikipedia, but you are one of the, you're one of the people quoted right at the top, which is for your, your hot press quote about the, oh, that's cool. this is the, this, yeah, you, this is Key West is what I like to take to my desert island. So there you are right there at the first paragraph of, of Key West. But there's a photo of this bar that Dylan frequented down in Key West and he has his own stool. And it's got the Bob Dylan stool. And I think about he has, <laughs> he has the ability to do that and remain kind of anonymous. And I remember reading about, you know, years ago, they said a lot of musicians, once they became massively successful, realized that their life at a certain point just became recording studio, jet, tour bus, hotel, rinse and repeat. And that's well, it. Well, one of the many, many things that I absolutely love about Bob Dylan is the fact that we, despite the biographies written about him, the um, even his own, uh, <laughs> I, I call it an autobiography or a memoir because he does, but the, the, the book called Chronicles, <laughs> which uh, he's, there's still so much about Bob Dylan that we don't know. Right, I mean, right. He, He's not as entirely unknown as, let's say, Shakespeare, who has had, you know, many more biographies written about him, despite the fact that we know virtually nothing about him factually, um, apart from a handful of concrete things. Um, I love it. I love it that Dylan is, you know, is self-constructed in that way, and that one way he keeps us minding our own business and stopping <laughs> and stopping speculating and wondering about him and his family and what he's quote unquote really like is to be able to have preserved throughout you know 60 years at this point of being an international celebrity mm-hmm. um he's really managed to preserve and protect that kind of privacy that initially I think a lot of writers criticized him for, and it particularly needled journalists who wanted to get to know the real Bob Dylan. Right, yeah. But I think it's become one of the things that people actually admire the most about him is his ability to survive 
within his privacy and his own decency in a world where absolutely everything is sprawled all over the internet. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, that occurred to me actually just the other day. I um, We went to see a movie, for the first movie that uh, my fiance and I have seen post-COVID. Uh, we went to see this documentary called The Sparks Brothers, uh, uh-huh. which is this mo- new movie coming out directed by Edgar Wright. And it's about this band that I was completely unfamiliar with, but apparently a lot of musicians love. And they're, it, the, the documentary is over two hours long, and it's exhaustive. It's about these two brothers that formed this band, Sparks. And by the time I got to the end of the movie, uh, where I was sitting listening to these guys' life story for, again, over like it's a 141-minute documentary, at no point does it mention whether either one of these men have a family. It doesn't mention <laughs> whether they have a wife, a husband, children, you have no idea. And I thought, that's kind of remarkable that I yeah, just spent two hours enough. with these yeah. guys and they managed to completely sidestep that question. And it's made it sort of entertaining to be like, okay, they clearly wanted to wall that part off as much as they are telling their life story to the, to the, to the director and to us, the audience. That part is obviously completely off limits because it's not even like they bring it up to say, you're not going to hear about it. They just don't even bring it up and you don't even think about it. And I'm like, that's well, they're, something they're, talk, they're talking about their art. They're not talking right. about who they are when the art is over. It it really kind of amazed me the number of people who went to see Bruce Springsteen's one man memoir show on mm. on Broadway, which is now coming back. I'm really glad to see that. Although what I really want is an E Street Band tour. I'm missing <laughs> that so much. But um, but you know, people saying, "Oh my goodness," you know, I went to the show and I feel like I know Springsteen. I've known him all my life. He's you know, I I understand everything about him now make no mistake he's talking about his past he's talking about his development as an artist which is very much the same thing dylan's doing in chronicles there's a major way in which springsteen is kind of following along from chronicles i think and then um and then he gets into his limo or his car and he goes home to New Jersey, and then he's actually Bruce Springsteen again. We have no idea what he's like, mm-hmm. you know? And that that whole sort of sharing themselves in public, he's, he's another person, another artist who's really good at appearing to do it while not doing it. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. You think you... You 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 followed Bob for so long, and he's giving you so many details, and you think you know him. You really don't. You're, and, and, and he's yeah. keeping that off. And then there's something wonderful about that. And again, I love the idea that... I I I hope he, uh, you know, I can't imagine him ever doing anything else, but I, you know, absolutely. We don't, uh, we know him as an artist, as a performer, as a, as a, someone who is, you know, beloved as a writer, beloved and respected um, globally as a writer. But why should we feel that we're entitled to actually know him? Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, it's dangerous to feel that sort of entitlement toward anyone, um, toward anyone you admire, toward anyone you don't like, um, toward anyone who's not willing to share it with you, I think, in this day and age of infinite oversharing. Yes. Yeah. Again, I love the idea that Bob's can go down to, say, Key West and just walk around and have fun and not be accosted because he's Bob Dylan. He has the, he can sort of give off that patina of, of uh, anonymity, and it seems to work. Uh, you know, he, he can walk around the parking lot of in New Jersey and go and just people don't recognize him and because he, he doesn't carry himself in a certain way. And it's it's kind of really amazing. By the way, 
Uh, something else I wanted to mention, you know, the song has the parentheses, Philosopher Pirate. Yeah. Um, is there a better description of Bob Dylan than <laughs> Philosopher Pirate? I love the description of Bob Dylan as Philosopher Pirate. I, mean, I, think that, I think that that's actually the description that made me think of, um, that made me think of Odysseus, because there's a very Philosopher Pirate quality to Odysseus. Um, it's also, I mean, whenever you're talking about pirates in Key West, perforce Jimmy Buffett makes his way trickling in there. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, the whole idea of a pirate is, you know, what does a pirate do? They're, they're confined to the sea, really. They don't spend a lot of time on land. They're constantly in motion. They're traveling. They're amassing a fortune. They're, um, what else do they do? They do some things that aren't very good. Um, <laughs> they steal, they, yeah. They yeah. pillage. They sink boats. But, but I think particularly in recent days with the wild success of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, um, the the whole idea of being a pirate is it's almost got like a Robin Hood quality to it in popular culture today that pirates are only stealing from, you know, overladen government ships that have stolen from native tribes anyway and somehow redistributing it or giving it back. And um, I don't know. I, th- I think a pirate today is a better thing than a pirate was a hundred years ago. And philosopher pirate may tap into that a little. I could picture, you know, Bob Dylan has talked about in a million songs, uh, like, you know, the sort of indis- indistinct time period uh, that he's, his songs seem to exist in. They, they seem to be the old West, but maybe not. They, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's talks of like horses and yet maybe it's modern. And I can certainly picture Bob himself imagining himself on a pirate ship. I think like he would have been the guy on the pirate ship with glasses and like jotting things down in a notebook. He would have been that guy. He wouldn't have been, I don't think he would have been the pillaging guy. He would have been the guy cataloging and taking notes and paying attention to what is going on. I feel like that's. Oh man, that I, think, I think he would have been up in the crow's nest, <laughs> um, looking at the sky and the sea together and, uh, and keeping an eye on that horizon line. <laughs> <laughs> so winding back around to this album, uh, rough and rowdy ways. I mean, yeah. Bob doesn't do concept albums as we, tend to think of them in this sort of like like in a, in this like a pejorative sense. But, right, yeah, but that's the thing. It's a, there are a few you could argue, I think, from his past. Well, right. That's what I'm, it's like, I'm, you know, clearly that he is let these, these songs work within their context and they will be pulled out in concert. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh-huh. like, you know, he, you mentioned the line about, I heard the news, I heard your last request. And, of course, wh- who makes a last request? Someone who's dying. Or, and, someone, or someone who's being executed, more the point. Right. And what happens in the next song after this, Murder Most Foul, it's yeah. the murder of John F. Kennedy. And the song that song ends with, you know, five solid minutes of someone playing something, kind of making a last request. Yeah. So it's like, I feel well, like I mean, this, look, this song leads into that song. Yeah, he's not, I mean, I mean, I know, I know other critics who would argue Blonde on Blonde is a concept album, Blood on the Tracks is a concept album, even the times here are changing. I mean, you could do, but I, you know, I think it's writer to recognize that on any Dylan album, 
the songs are in a particular order. Mm-hmm. He has, and I mean, Blood on the Tracks is a great example of this. There were other songs like the song Up to Me yeah. could have been on that album. It's it's a great song, but it didn't fit. So it mm-hmm. doesn't get released. Um, it, you know, Blind Willie McTell. Blind Willie McTell. How can you write a song like Blind Willie McTell and record <laughs> it and not put it on an album? Foot of pride. <laughs> you don't put it on an album because it doesn't, Fit on that album mm-hmm. how can you record you know you could go on and on abandoned love my god caribbean wind um, angelina exactly, yeah exactly it's but dylan those are just proof that that jack frost <laughs> <laughs> when he's producing an album has a definite idea of an order of how the songs are to go and some sort of like a call and response going on. Um, some sort of the references within one song. Um, like think about James Joyce's uh, short story collection, Dubliners, all those stories stand on their own. And yet they do go in a definite order in Joyce's case, it's chronological, loosely chronological, going from stories that are about childhood to stories that are about a man who is approaching middle age um, or at least that's the, the leading protagonist. And and it, to me, at least Rough and Rowdy Ways runs the same way, um, that there are connections. The songs are separable. You can listen to them separately, but I like listening to them better altogether. <laughs> yeah, they said they, they exist within their context. And yet, like I said, Bob is going to be pulling them out and doing them in concert. And that leads oh, to Oh, some- I can't wait. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you. I've been asking everybody now because, you know, presumably uh, tours are going to be happening again. Just Tony, Tony Garnier said in that clip a couple of months ago, when we're going back out, not if, when. Um, I know, I so, know, I So know. I want to ask you, like, okay, and Bob is coming to you and saying, hey, Ann, what song do you want to hear me open? We, you know, okay, you're, you got the tickets to see him in New York on X date. What song do you want to hear me open with? So what song would you want to hear him open your his first concert back? Uh, to, to I'm assuming that it's going to be, as is often the case with Bob, it's going to be, um, or at least it used to be, that he would open with a new song from the new album. Sometimes he would open with a great hit. Um, I, I think if he, he may open with things have changed <laughs> yet again. But if I, were, if I wanted a song from this album, if I were picking a song from Rough and Rowdy Ways that would be the opener, um, oh goodness, you know what? I would actually do a complete curveball. I would open with I've made up my mind to give myself to you. <laughs> and okay. then and then about five or six songs in, I would absolutely punch the audience with Jimmy Reed. Oh man, that's going to kill live. That's yeah. going to kill live. That's your stand up and dance song. And I mm-hmm. think that will maybe take the place of early Roman Kings and the set list mm. or it could, it could, I'm just thinking. And then um, where he has traditionally been playing Scarlet town, which I would hate to not hear. I love Scarlet town, but I, I, I want Key West. I, I am dying to hear what this is going to sound like live. Uh, this then is... after after the break, when they come back on stage, he usually does two songs. He and the band do two songs. 
I want one of those two songs to be crossing the Rubicon <laughs> and the other one is dealer's choice. Okay. <laughs> that, that's right. my, that's my little dream. <laughs> and, and, hey, those are, again, those are all great picks. Yeah. Good, goodbye. Jimmy Reed is going to be an amazing song. To that's going to be live. so good live. That's going to be so good live. And, yeah. and, you know, we, we, we were talking about this just before we started recording about how greedy Bob makes you is that he, you know, the man is 80 years old. He delivers one of the best albums of his, of his career. And this album I like this album the minute I heard it, but it's yeah, it's too. gotten better in the past year. When I've listened to it more and more, I'm like, oh boy, this is this is really pretty damn strong. Uh, I mean, I think all of his albums in the 21st century have been very strong, but this one this one keeps rising in my estimation. And yet, I am like, well, all right, Bob, what else you got? You know, which is ridiculous. Oh, don't don't don't. <laughs> ever go there can you imagine saying to him bob what else you got i know that's ridiculous absolutely buried <laughs> yeah it's, it's absolutely yeah. ridiculous and it's, i also i also can't help wonder what do the bootlegs sound like you know is there some up-tempo version of key west that's out there that we're going to hear at some point it's interesting i one wonders i'm i'm really looking forward to uh the next bootleg series or the next bootleg series in the plural um whenever they're released and whatever they are because what they show me is just the it shows you the drafting of how dylan creates something how he gets it to the point where he wants it and then chooses to release it. And, and it shows you his working process leading up to what is finally released. But even then it's not done because how he performs it in concert is always going to shift and change. Mondo Scripto, good heavens, when he starts rewriting the lyrics <laughs> to songs that you think you knew by heart. Um, it's his prerogative as an artist, and I'm always interested in seeing those changes and re- revisions, um, not revisions, but literally seeing something again through the artist's songs. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to hear what, what, what else, what he worked on to get to this point. But, but even if, even if we never get those, this is still an amazing achievement. It said it's a year later. I'm still listening to this album regularly. And this one is, this song is my favorite off of the record. It's just, it's the one that I, I, I sit and meditate to kind of the most. It's just, yeah. it's just, there's so much to it. And I keep discovering kind of new things. And I, I agree. He was song. just also my favorite song off the record. And I would, I would like to give my last word to um, Key West's other most famous writer after Hemingway. And that would be Tennessee Williams in a conversation that he had with James Grissom in 1982. Williams talked about Dylan and his lyrics in an interview that's not very well known at all. Hmm. And he said the following, quote, There is such a lovely yearning in Dylan's songs, in his voice, in the construction of his lyrics. For me, for this writer, yearning is walking, crawling perhaps towards some understanding. And I can listen to him, and I can lose myself in the journey he has constructed, and I can be saved. It's beautiful. Isn't that great? Yeah, that is marvelous. Well, think about that when you listen to Key West. Oh, I'm going to. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, it really meant a lot to me that we could. I really wanted to do some song from the record on the year anniversary of of this of this amazing piece of art. And so, thank you so much for coming back on the show and talking about it with me. It was fantastic. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? 
Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking. I'm, um, you can just go to my website, which is annmargaretdaniel.com. And I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter. I, I do tweet on occasion and I also have an Instagram account, but go to my website and it'll lead you to the other places. Thank you kindly. All right. Fair enough. Of course, everybody, if you want to find back episodes of this show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And I have to thank our Patreon supporters of Pod Dylan. You go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast to support the network. Big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krug, George Doherty, and Joaquin Meckel for their support of Pod Dylan. So thanks, guys. Uh, that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Every year, Millions of vacationers go south to Miami, Florida to bask in the sun. Many new travelers are venturing south of Miami into the group of islands known as the Florida Keys. A single highway connects over 200 keys and separates the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. 192 kilometers long, This road stretches as much as 11 kilometers without touching land. Almost the entire route has now been settled, all the way to the southernmost tip of the United States, Key West.